Gunnis T, how are ye? Welcome to the Candlelit Tales podcast. We tell Irish myths with music and have a chat about it in the next episode. My name is Sarika and I'm here with my brother Aaron Hegarty. This week we are listening to the story of the Second Battle of Moichora, told by Sarika and by me. This podcast is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Go to candlelittales.ie to find out more about us or follow us on any social media at Candlelit Tales. Now, Sorka, tell us a story, will you? Bress, son of Alatha, went to his father and his father's people and asked for their help in reconquering the island that he had lost. And his father said, No. What you have lost justly, you'll not regain unjustly. But Alatha was not the only king of the Fomorians. They had other kings. And several of the other kings decided to side with Bress and take the island back for their own. And they called up from under the sea the creatures that were their allies. And they sent to the far north for the people that were their allies. And for the seven years of truce that Bress had negotiated with the Tuatadanan, the Fomorians gathered a host. A hidden host. Much of it was under the water around Tory Island. And so from the island, from the mainland, the Tuatadanan could see the seas begin to bubble and froth. But they could not see what was lurking below. Ever since Bress had vacated his position, being pushed out from his kingship and leaving the land, Nuada had held council with all of the kings and woman kings of the land to try and convince them all that a war was coming. They had bargained with Bress for seven years and they knew they needed it. This time was in order to convince every one of these kings and rulers of the land that they in fact would need to bring all of their might and their forces to face whatever the Formorians brought to their shore. This was no easy task, however. They would need provisions for such an army, and the wealth that was once in the land was not so anymore. The people had suffered under breath. And now they were being asked to sacrifice more for a war they did not all agree was necessarily needed. Although Nuada was the high king of the land, he could not demand anything from any one. Instead, he would have to negotiate and make it clear that they were in fact all in this together. So, from the north and the south, from the east, On the west, they came to the centre. They came to the hill of Tara. And many held counsel with Nuada over the years, but they were not all very easily convinced. 
You see, oftentimes some thought they should leave well enough alone and sure wasn't it the quarrel for the north coming from the people in the south. And those in the east argued it was unfair for them to provide so much for any army's resources when those in the west were not contributing the same. And no one really wanted to commit to a fully fledged fight, so they were finding excuses any way they could. Nuada needed all of the strength and strategy he could muster to try and rally these kings. But flying the might of one island under a single mast was no easy task at all. Gradually, as the whispers of an army amassing from the north came back to their ears over the years, he convinced these rulers of the land that this war was indeed coming and they would need everyone to be on side. They would be better off suffering through any war rather than through the persecution of Bress and the destruction that Balor of the evil eye would surely bring. He succeeded to a point. Although many still dropped out, many still argued, but only when the time was come did he know exactly who was in and who was out, and he would have to do with what he had. So he gathered a force of warriors, and of healers, of bars and poets, of forgers and weapon makers, of the heroes of the Tuatha Dé Danann that would be on their side. Enough, he thought, to make a stand. Enough, at least, that he trusted them all the negotiations of how the fighting would be dealt with fell open to debate once more. Frustrated and utterly at the end of his tether, he allowed only those who swore they truly would fight against the Fomorians and not cause any more trouble or second-guessing or quarrelling or boasting of a bigger, better plan. Only those who would be helpful would be left in through the gates of Tara. And in a quiet chamber he held counsel with his druids, who spoke to him of the prophecy once more. The prophecy that the Savaldanok, the master of all, would come, and he would lead them to victory over the Fomor. But there was still no sign of him coming, and the army of the Fomorians were on their way. They were running out of time. Now, the time came for the Fomorian army to land on the shore of the mainland. And this army was huge and vast and terrible. Far, far more than the Tuatha Dé Danann had anticipated. Led by the kings of the Fomorians, Bress, and Indek, Gol and Ingol, and the terrible Balor of the Many Blows, Balor of the Evil Eye. And they came onto the mainland, leading with them a vast army of creatures terrifying to behold. And the Morrigan 
goddess of war, she came before Nuada in Tara, and she told him that to go up against that host would be putting your face into a fire, dashing your head against the side of a cliff, putting your hand into a nest of snakes. Now hearing this, the Dagda, great warrior that he was, present in Tara, he decided that he would go and speak to the Fomorians. Reason with them. Ask them for a delay. Until all of the hosts of the Tua Dedanan had assembled. He was sure they were reasonable people. He set out. But the Fomorians did not meet him as he came to them. They'd heard from Bress what a fuss the two of the Danon made over these notions of hospitality, and so they decided to make a sport of this hospitality, and a sport of the Dagda himself. They dug a huge trench in the ground, and they filled it with porridge and oats, whole pigs and sheep, meal and fat. They boiled it all together, and they filled the hole in the ground with it. And when the Dagda arrived, Indek of the Fomorian said to him, If you don't finish every bit of this, we will make an end of you. That is the hospitality of the Fomorians. And so the Dagda, understanding now what the situation was, this was not a meal, this was more of a fight. He took out a spoon. It was a spoon that he had carved himself. It was big enough for a man and a woman to lie in the bowl of. And he filled it up with that porridge of the Fomorians and he ate it. And he ate all of it. Swallowing it down. And to make sure that no one could say he'd left any part of it after him, he scraped down the sides and the mud and the gravel that was soaked with the gravy, he swallowed it down and smacked his lips and thanked them for the meal. And then he turned and walked away. And on his way back to Tara, the Dagda saw the Morrigan, the goddess of war herself. She was bathing, with one leg on either side of the river, the river Unius of Connacht. And he called out to her then, because he knew now that these Fomorians were not people to be reasoned with, and because of the insult they'd given him the Dagda wanted only to destroy them, drive them off this island that was his home. And so he asked her if she would give him her blessing in the battle to come for she was fickle she didn't give her loyalty lightly she kept her feet on either side of the river and she looked at the Dagda and said if you please me and so the Dagda got into the river and he lay between her legs 
and with his mighty club, he pleased her. Lou, the Shining One, was with Mananon MacLear, and at this time he was full of doubt. He could not ignore the widespread whisperings of this war anymore, so Lou asked for Mananon's great spear of light to be gifted and given to him for this challenge that he would face now. Not fully confident, not fully knowing he would face it. Even if he was not the Savaldonic, or whether or not he could even claim to be, he knew he had to try, at least. And so he followed all of those wanting to take part in the war to come, their meeting place, Atara. So this is where Lou went. He travelled over the waves in Scoob Tenna, Mananan's magic boat, until he arrived to the island's shore, and run fleet-footed and fast up towards the great hill of Tara. The walls were guarded and locked. A gatekeeper at the gate, when he arrived, he announced that he wanted to offer his service to the King Nuada and to the army that would be facing the Fomorian fight. The gatekeeper looked him up and down and said, uh, No, we're uh, full up. Orders from above. No one's to be let in. Now Lou was stunned at this. He argued, saying that he was a great warrior and a master wielder of sword and spear. Yeah, we have enough warriors now. Thanks very much. But Lou still argued. I can forge weapons and even mend spears and shields broken in the battle. Still, he was refused. No. No, we have enough of them now, and we don't want any more troublemakers. Lou began to list all and any of the skills he could offer to this army. I'm a master healer. No, sure, we have Dean Keck for that and his kids. Well, I'm a master of knowledge then. And Ogma's our man for that post. I'm a poet and a bard. No. A stargazer. Now, Lou, after offering all of the great things that he could do and could do to an ability of any master, his confidence now bolstered by frustration, he eventually said, I am a master of all those that I have named. Can you name any one of those behind the wall that can do everything that I have named? At that, the gatekeeper went silent. He went to Nuada and told him of this man at the gate named Lou. Nuada ordered him to come in, but he could not hide the relief and excitement in his face. The Savaldonic had arrived and just in time, word got around like a wildfire, before Lou had even been left in. 
whisperings from ear to ear. Everyone was eager and excited. All eyes fell on this strange youth with the shining hair entering into Tara. And when he came in, they greeted him, all welcoming, all relieved, all bar Ogma. The master of knowledge was also a great strong man of the Tour de Danon, and he did not think very much of this young strap claiming to be a master of all. Ogma bared down on him, showing his huge bracing muscles bulging beneath his tunic, and he leaned down and picked up a great flagstone wrapping his arms around the pillar that was huge as he heaved it onto his shoulders and flung it with all his might over the wall of Tara, so far that it landed on the farthest hill on the horizon, where it shattered into three huge pieces. He called to Lou then. Fully sure that this youth could not do anything near as impressive as what he had just shown, he was stunned to see Lou disappear, run as fast as a flickering light over wave, and get to where this great stone pillar had cracked into three pieces, and as fast as a blink of an eye, Lou picked up those three pieces and threw them single-handedly over his shoulder. And not only did they land back in Tara, they landed from the exact place where Ogma had thrown them from, one on top of the other in perfect placement. Everyone stood aghast. Lou walked back into the gates, and Nuada welcomed him then, and announced that the Savaldonok had arrived, and spirits went up for the first time in seven years. They had all been downcast, they had all been unsure, the grumblings and mutterings of whether this war was even worth fighting had been rife. No one even thought they could defeat Palor of the Evil Eye, no blade could kill him, but now they had a hope. The prophecy was true. Then Nuda set Lu as the general of this army, he asked him to do his best, be the master of battle, and lead them to victory. A great shout rose up from the hill of Tara. And although Lu accepted this position of general, after all he was the master of many things, he had never actually been a general before. So the demons of uncertainty rose up within him once more, until... He set about doing what he always did best, asking questions. He went to everyone inside the gates then and asked them what they could do best. Those skilled with swords and spears, he knew the fastest, the strongest, and set about their formations. Those that were able to cast spells, the druids, the poets, the bards, he knew them all by name and where they would be placed until he came to Carpra, the poet who decreed he would set out a great satire so that when it would be called the morning of the fight it would demote all of the Fomorians' courage when they sang it aloud on the first day. Gubnu said he could fix any weapon broken on any day 
so that it would be restored the following. Credna offered to put the rivets on spears and brass hilts on swords and bosses on shields, while Lukta the carpenter, he said he could make shields for everyone so strong and waited well for the challenge to come. Dienkecht, the master healer, He said he would dig a great pit of healing and his children would help restore anyone injured or even close to death. And the Dagda, with his harp, Uov, could play music each night and every morning to keep the spirits high, so that each man and woman could fight with renewed vigour and courage each day of the fight while it lasted. So they made their way to the plain where they would face the Fomorian onslaught. Lou led with grace and skill, but from the back, with a garrison of men surrounding him. Just to keep him safe, Nuda decided. They would not be beaten down, for they will be revitalized every day, and Lou thought they might stand a chance after all. But when they saw the army of the Fomorians, their boats blackening the horizon behind them, they saw a force unlike anything they had ever seen before. So vast was this army, they had not seen the like of it. Now they knew it must be true that Bress had gathered not only the Fomor together from all of the seven nations under the sea, but the fighters from the north and creatures from the deep, dark depths of the ocean. And there, behind the great force, marshalling from behind as Lou was with the Tua, stood Balor of the Evil Eye. The armies met on the plain of Moitura. Pillars were raised and the poets climbed to the top of them to cast out their spells. And the poets and the bards and the magic workers of the Tua de Danon They cast spells on the army of the Fomorians so that every rock reached up and tripped them. And so the water ran away from them and they had nothing to drink. And it bound up the water inside their bodies so the land would take nothing from them. But they would bloat and swell and be in pain. And this was not the Moitura, where the Tuadedanan had fought the Firbolg. This was another plane, given the same name for the same reason, for the battle and the poets who would watch it. And the two armies came against each other. An Indak of the Fomorians said to Bress, It is in small pieces their bones will be if they do not give in to us and pay their tribute. And they clashed, like the clashing of waves on a rock. And that first long day they fought, and the Fomorians broke against them like a wave but washed back again and again and again relentless against the Tua de Danon. And the second day they fought furiously, none holding back now, save for the general 
of the Tuatha Dé Danann, surrounded by his bodyguard. The Fomorians clashed against them again, and it was not until the third day that the Fomorians began to see that there was something wrong here, something strange. Because their weapons that were broken on one day, they were still broken the next day. The warriors of the Fomorians who were wounded and killed were wounded and dead the next day, but it was not so with the Tua de Danann. No. With three turns on his anvil, Gobnu made a new spear. With three strikes against a branched Lukta made a new spear shaft with three rivets Kredna had the spearhead set in the shaft with three turns Kron had it sharpened to a vicious point and Dian Kecht with his daughter Aramuth and his son Octriel they stood chanting spells of healing over a well so thick and green with healing herbs that it was almost a soup and into it they cast warriors near dead and some say even those that were dead and they would rise up out of it hale and whole again take up the spears that Gobnu handed to them and be ready for the same battle the very next day Although the two of the Danann had been going strong for three days and three nights, this Formorian host was so fierce and their numbers so strong, they could not last another three, and surely they would be beaten into the ground eventually. Dolph, the smith of the Formorians, was getting sick of seeing this unfair advantage played out in front of his eyes, seeing these shining weapons coming towards them from the Tua de Danon each and every day. He was not sure what craft or what magic they were making, but he decided this was the most unfair of the advantages. So they sent a spy to try and kill their smith. They sent Ruadon the son of Bress, to find out who it was who was making these weapons. This was no easy task, and perhaps only able to do because he was half to a day himself. Ruadon went towards his mother's side. His mother, Bridget, the healing one, the one who was watching with grief in her eyes for all of the death and destruction he was fighting against his own mother's side, and Ruadon watched and saw the magic of the Tuatai, restoring with vigor, music, and healing for the battle to come. And then he saw Gobnu making those shining weapons, repairing every one broken. And so he got in line and asked for a spear, and Kredna gave a great sharp rivet upon it. And this was gifted to Ruadon, not knowing that he was about to cast it straight out at Gobnu the smith. But as he did, a stone flipped and he tripped and his shoe went under his heel as he tripped and lost his balance. And that spear that was aiming at Gobnu's heart went through his shoulder instead. And so Gobnu fell 
but picking up his great anvil, he flung it heavily at Rudon, smashing his head against the rocks of his forge. Bridget watched. She fell to her knees next to her son, and she set out a keening then, a keening and a wail that stopped everyone from doing what they were doing, for everyone on the land heard it. And it was the first time a keening had ever happened on that land. And the grief that poured out of her was for all that had died in battle, needlessly. And she was overcome with this feeling, and everyone grieved with her. And all the women came to her side then, to grieve and keen with her, for the death of Ruadon, for both sides saw son die that day and for the death of everyone who had died. But the fight would not stop there. And so the Dagda picked up Ulf, and he played a song. He played music to beat into their hearts some form of energy and vigor and furiosity that they could bring to this fight. And Nuada heard it, and charging with his silver arm held aloft, he brought the armies onwards onto the onslaught against this terrible, relentless, never-ending Formorian fight. There was no end in sight, and Lou watched. He saw Balor enter the fray. Still with his eye covered, he was beating men back with bloody blows until Nuda came charging at him to be beaten easily back in a bloody heap after a single blow and Nuda of the silver arm died in the battlefield and when the Tuatidanan saw their king lie dead their courage left them then Balor walked back to the hillside away from the fight He had had enough of this, and he began to prepare to take off the cloaks shielding his evil eye. It was time to destroy them all. Everyone froze, and every eye landed on Balor with fear full. Lou looked around the battlefield. He saw Nuada lying dead. Beside him, Maka. Dead too, both felled by Balor. He saw the Dagda, terribly wounded by a spear thrown by Balor's wife, Kathleen of the Crooked Teeth. He saw Balor preparing to open his terrible eye. There were seven veils over that eye, the eyelid grown so thick and heavy could not be opened at once, only in stages. And from his hill on the other side, Valor opened the first of the veils, peeled it back, lifted it up, and as he did so, the ferns began to wither. And Lou broke away from his bodyguard 
Balor lifted the second veil, and the grass began to blacken, and Lou, weaponless, ran, ducking, weaving among the fighters, the spears, the swords, the shields crashing around him. Balor lifted the third veil. The wood and the trees heated up. Lu dived around a knot of fighters, coming up for air just in time to see. The fifth veil lifted. The woods beginning to smoke. Everything becoming red hot. The heat haze rising around him. He had no weapon to his hand. He called out to the land. The land that had tripped Ruadon. The land that the Tuatha Danann had bound themselves to. The land that was theirs and not the Fomorians that they planted and the Fomorians only took from. And into his hand there came a stone, sharp and deadly. And Lou, running as fast as he had ever run, his face shining with desperation, he saw Balor lift the sixth veil. He felt his own blood begin to boil. He felt his heart falter and stutter in his chest. He knew he was too far still. Too far to make this cast. But if Balor lifted the final veil, the world would burn. And so he threw. And it flew. And from that day on, they called him Law Father. It seemed his arm stretched across the battlefield, across the sky itself, because he was too far to make that shot. And yet he did. struck the eye out of the head of Balor. And when that eye was blazing back into the back of Balor's head, it burned right through it, and its gaze fell on the Fomorian army behind him. It decimated their army and burned away any fight they had in them for that day. And the Tuar they Danann charged, with Lu leading the way, and the rest of the battle was a rout. Balor's eye continued to burn into the ground. It carved a crater there where it burned through soil and rock and into the water channels below and dark, evil-looking water rose up. A lake bubbled 
and broke through. Its dark waters are still there to this day, in Loch Nassul. This podcast was produced and edited by Oshin Ryan and Rory O'Shea. You can find out more about us on our website, candlelittales.ie. And we're on all social media, so like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Candlelittales or send us a message or get onto our mailing list. For more videos and live streams, like and subscribe to our Candlelit Tales YouTube channel, which now has a Candlelit Tales for Kids playlist. Hashtag Candlelittletales. Liking and subscribing to our channel really helps us grow and get to more people. And if you're able to give us more direct support, you can chip in a few bob at patreon.com forward slash candlelittales or make a one-time donation through the PayPal button on our website. We also do really like to hear back from you with your questions and requests. So please feel free to contact us directly or leave your question in the comments section below. Because what we really want to do is get these stories out there. Share them with as many people as possible. So anything you can do to help, we really appreciate. And we really appreciate you listening. Gurmila Magar.